why CBC should be a seeker-sensitive church. Now, please don't be shocked by this title. Because, as you know, I have a very negative view regarding the concept, techniques, and strategies of what is commonly known as seeker-sensitive churches. But I chose this title to emphasize how the adherents of this movement have twisted this and, in fact, have totally distorted the Word of God to arrive at their own empty philosophy that Paul talks about in chapter 2 of Colossians that we've already studied. As we come to chapter 3 now of the book of Colossians, especially the first five verses, I believe that we have come to one of the most exciting, glorious passages to be found in the Word of God. Colossians chapter 3, especially verses 1 through 5. And if God had been gracious enough to touch me with the Caleb syndrome, I would have been shouting and hollering at you this morning when it comes to this truth. Because it's such a beautiful, such an awesome truth here. And I just pray that you might pay attention to the word of God and allow the spirit of God to bring it home to your heart. So after describing what Christ did as our redeemer to cut us off from, or to use Paul's metaphorical language, to circumcise us from our all nature and the way of life and set us free from the slavery of the old covenant, the legalistic aspect of it, Paul now turns in this chapter to explain exactly how we are to live this new life in Christ. If you are looking for a passage of scripture that describes, details, outlines what you are to do as a new believer in Christ, as a new creation, this is it. Here, it tells us how to live the new life for Jesus Christ. This is a glorious truth outlined in the passage. So notice how the Apostle Paul begins it, reading from the New Living Testament. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. Notice that. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. Now the King James Version, beautiful, beautiful version, tends to give an indication of doubt by translating this opening phrase, if you have been raised. But now, for those of you who might be a little familiar with Greek, there's what is called the if of certainty. This is an if of certainty. It's not an if of doubt, as though it may not happen, it could or could not happen. That's why it's better translated by the, by the New American Standard and the New Living Testament that since you have been raised with Christ. Because Paul is describing a historical, spiritual fact for us. Those of us who have been placed faith in Christ, we've been cut off from the old life. We've been cut off from the old nature. And now we have been raised with Christ. It's a fact. If you are a believer, you have been raised with Christ. And we now share in his glorious resurrection power. The same glorious power that Paul mentioned in chapter 2 that raised Jesus from the dead that same glorious power is now ours as believers in Christ because we have been raised in the power of that new life. And it is that resurrection power that sustains us today. And so Paul is saying, that's how we are to live our new life in him. 
Because where he is, so are we. Where Christ is, so are we. But now, exactly where is Christ? Again, here is how the English Standard Version translates Paul's answer. If then, or since you have been raised with Christ, notice the word, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Oh, please, if there's any passage of scripture that you underline or mark, do it on this one. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In a nutshell, that's how believers in Christ are to live today, right here. Paul defines who a true seeker is in this verse. A true seeker is not an unbeliever seeking God. Because the Bible is very clear. Now the mega church seeker sensitive people teach and practice that is the unbeliever who seeks after God. Therefore we must plan our services to please them. Paul teaches that is wrong. That is contrary. Because the Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible says there is none that seeketh after God. No, not one. So I don't care what mega church leader says that the unsaved seeks after God. That is not true because the Bible says there's none that seeketh after God. No, not one. Now, do you believe what the Bible says or do you believe what the mega church leader says? The unsaved may seek after happiness. They may seek after wealth and health and so on. And they may go thinking they get finding it in Christ, but in actuality, they're not seeking God. They're seeking something that is selfish. They're seeking something for themselves rather than seeking God for God's sake. According to the Apostle Paul then, a true seeker after God is a believer seeking intimacy with God and heavenly things that lead to Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity. That is why I say CBC should be a seeker-sensitive church. Sensitive to those people who are seeking intimacy with God. That's what Paul says here. This is where the church leaders in the church growth movement have gone wrong. They have misunderstood who the true seeker after God is. I repeat it is not the unsaved, but the saved. It is not the unbeliever, but the believer. We should not be seeking to please the unsaved. Now, we are thankful and grateful that those who don't know Christ attend the services. But our aim, our effort should not be to satisfy or to please what they like or do not like. According to Paul, the apostle, we are to be seeking to please those who are seeking God. And those are the believers. The era has brought about what is called, as I mentioned, the seeker-sensitive church movement that teaches that church services are to be planned and designated and designed to cater to the needs of unbelievers rather than to believers. This has resulted in a spiritually weak and spiritually powerless congregation of church members and attendees who claim godliness but deny the power thereof. Now, this is not just my opinion, by the way, but it is actually the opinion of one of the men who is considered to be one of the leading 
leaders of this concept. He was one of the ones who helped to get it established. His name is Hybos. He was one of the major ones to get this movement going along with some others. Rick Warren, Shula, and the rest of those guys. But Hybels is one of the leading ones. Now I want to show you a clip of how Bill Hybels described coming to a realization on his part of the error of emphasizing the needs of the wrong group of people who attend church services. Now I showed you this before, but I want to show it because it has to do with what we're talking about today. So just take a look now at this short video. And remember now, this is the man who helped to start this movement. Listen to him. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to digest as a leader because some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars in, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things that we didn't put much money into and didn't put much staff against is stuff that our people are crying out for. It was crazy making. Let me show you just very briefly one little part of our discovery uh, in this survey that Greg did. And again, there's just tons of discoveries, but this is one little one. Um, here's a, a kind of a continuum. And uh, here's a cross. And here are people who are pre-Christian, but who are figuring out Christianity in the context of Willow Creek Community Church. Seekers, investigators, okay, that's here. These are people who are just across the line, like beginning Christians. These are growing Christians. And then these are people who are fully devoted followers of Christ as they self-describe, okay? Now, we asked one question, which was, uh, how, how helpful is Willow Creek Church being to you? And how much help are they being to you in these various areas, when you're in these areas uh, in these stages of your life. Okay, so if this would be like 10, we're, you know, Willow's really doing well. For our pre-Christians, remarkably, and this was like good news, they were giving us like nines, going, I'm investigating Christianity, I come to this church, I love the services, I love what's offered to me, the resources, I like how the truth of Christianity is made relevant to me, so in a way I can understand it, rated us very high. Even the new Christians, it came down a little bit, but not that much. They were like, man, you helped me get in a group, you helped me with this, you helped me with that. It was all pretty cool. All right, then we get to growing Christians and the scores start going down. And then we get to fully devoted followers of Christ and the scores got scarily low. And I was like, that bothers me. That really bothers me. Like, like we're not helping them that much. So I said, why don't we do some focus groups, find out what's really going on. And they said, Bill, we did that. I said, All right, you're going to tell me about that too? We're like, yep, put the gun away. It's all right. So they said, you know, a lot of people in this category, they're saying they're not being fed. That they want more meat of the word of God. They want more serious-minded scripture taught to them. They want to be challenged more and so. 
And I was like, it's hard for me to hear. We give messages on weekends. We give extremely challenging messages at our midweek service. We're one of the only churches in the United States that has a midweek service, a full-blown Bible teaching session in addition to what we do on weekends. We have small groups. We have classes. We have all this stuff. And I started getting a little irritated. I was like, I'll feed those people. I'll hire some old... I'll hire some old seminary prof. I'll feed them till they barf. You know? So, you should see me in my finer moments. So, anyway, they said, hey, Bill, that's really not... That's, that's sort of the presenting thing they're saying. We think we know what's really going on. So Greg Hawkins, again, just brilliant guy, he goes, Bill, we've made a mistake. What we should have done at about this point, when people cross the line of faith, become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people... We should have gotten people, taught them how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own because what's happening to these people, the older they get, the more they're expecting the church to feed them when, and in fact, the more mature a Christian becomes, a Christian should become more of a self-feeder. Okay? This was just mind I want you to note several things here now. Number one, notice what he calls the people before they become, before they're saved. What does he call them? Pre-Christians. They don't call them sinners or unsaved. Another term they're using now is unchurch. Because you see that could hurt the feelings of the unsaved if you call them unsaved or lost. So they use these phrases pre-Christian or unchurch. You know? Now, notice the other thing too that I think he's wrong here, although he is that he talks about um, there comes a point when people shouldn't need to be fed anymore. They feed themselves. I think that's half true and half false. Do you know what the root meaning of a pastor is? Literally? Anybody? The root meaning? Shepherd. But what's the root meaning of shepherd? Feeder. Feeder. So a pastor is really a feeder of the people of God. And as long as the Bible says that pastors are needed, then the people need to be fed. All right? But now that's Bill Hybels, one of the leaders. Now let me show you a little clip of two well-known leaders who reject the seeker-sensitive movement and they give you the reason why. Dr. Sproul and Dr. Richard Muller, two of the well-respected leaders in the United States. Listen to them as they discuss this. What are your thoughts about the seeker-sensitive movement, as it is called? What, what was that? The seeker-sensitive movement. Your thoughts? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's a very, very bad thing. Very bad. Because it rests on a fundamental error. The assumption is that unbelievers outside the church are desperately seeking for God, number one. The second fundamental error 
is that the purpose of corporate worship on Sunday morning is to reach the lost. Now, why are those the two fundamental errors? The first one is that the Bible makes it absolutely clear that in our natural condition, in our fallen state, no one seeks after God. The only people who seek after God are those who have been already born again. Seeking after God begins with regeneration. We are the seekers. Now, Aquinas had to answer this question in his day when people said, you know, it sure seems to me that my next-door neighbor is searching after Christ, but he's not a believer, and yet the Bible says nobody searches. You know, what's with that? And Aquinas said, here, you see people all around you that are searching for peace of mind, for happiness, for relief from guilt, for meaning and significance to their lives, and you watch them searching desperately for these things, and you say, well, the only thing that can give them that is Christ. And so you assume then that they're searching for that which only God can give them, the benefits of God. They therefore must be seeking after God. Quine says, no. He said, the problem with fallen man is that we seek for the benefits that only God can give us, while at the same time, we're fleeing as fast and as hard as we can from Him. So the seeker out there is not seeking for God. He's seeking for a hiding place from God. So get that straight. Second of all, worship is to be the corporate gathering together of the people of God for worship. Okay? Now, you always, you always assume that there's going to be some tears along with the wheat, and there's going to be unbelievers present in the worship, and you've got to be sensitive to that, as Paul indicates to the Corinthians. So you have to, at some point, uh, address the lost in your sermon. But fundamentally, what's going on on Sunday morning are the believers gathering on the Lord's Day to attend the study of the uh, sit at the feet of the apostles, to gather for prayer, for worship, adoration, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And what we should be most concerned about in our worship is what is it that pleases God, right. not what, what is it that pleases the unbeliever. Right. This, is, this is one of the great tragedies of our day, I think. And it's going to really cost the church and not, it's not going to take a long time. It already has cost the church. I think that's brilliant, and I agree with every word of it, and that's the very heart of it. I, I think the language here is a bit dated now. In other words, I don't hear much about the seeker-sensitive church as explicitly as we heard that methodology referred to in the past, but the logic's still there. And, and here's what I found it, just in terms of observing this, and R.C. got to the deep level. Let me get to the level you're likely to see. Uh, Here's the logic. It's a pretty seductive logic, which is if you scratch people where they now itch, they'll be more open to hearing the gospel. And uh, the logic is that if you, if you help them to know how to have a better bank account and, and more obedient children and, and uh, greener grass and, you know, well-manicured lawn and whatever else they're trying to help them with, and, uh, you know, you do a sermon series on this and a sermon series on that, you'll earn their trust because you actually met their needs. This is explicit in the methodology. So they'll then trust you when you talk to them about the gospel. Two problems with that. Number one, it doesn't work. 
And, and number two, in a lot of these places, they never even get to talking about the gospel. You know, you just come back later, they're still on green grass. You know, and uh, now instead of dealing with preschoolers, it's dealing with teenagers. But it's just, in, a, in other words, we actually never, never get to it. And uh, I'll tell you, just look phenomenologically at this. Look at how many big churches were built on this methodology, and their back door was larger than their front door. And uh, you just don't have a church left. It's also a strategy of unbelief mm -hmm. in this regard. We're still looking for Joseph's pants. Now, what do I mean by that? And the last sermon that Martin Luther ever preached two days before he fell ill and died, he preached on the gospel, and he preached on his concern that despite of the awakening of the Reformation and the recovering of the light of the gospel, which was now being preached and was available to the people, the people were still... Uh, addicted to relics. And rather than read the scriptures, they would go to Trier, where they had in their uh, relics uh, uh, the pants of Joseph or a vial of milk from the breast of Mary. And what he was saying is, is that what people were looking for was power. And they believed that there was power in the pants of Joseph. Now, we don't go around looking for the pants of Joseph now. Now the power is in the program. Whereas what Luther says, then what we've been hearing, and what we just heard from your message, is that the power of the Holy Ghost is mediated in and through the Word. Amen. When are we going to believe that? That's when I say it's a strategy of unbelief. The minister wants to grow his church. The minister wants to see success. And so he's looking for all these programs, all these techniques to get people to come in. But he never goes over the bridge and gets to the Word. If you want a power in your church, be an expository preacher. Preach the Word. Because that's where the Spirit is. Isn't, isn't that God's strategy? Yes. And if we believe God's strategy, we're going to preach the Amen. Word. Amen. In season. And I'm preaching now. <laughs> it works. Amen. If you heard some of those things before, I, I like to find people who agree with me. But notice what he said. And this is very subtle. We're coming to believe that the power is in the program. So we're trying to make our programs more attractive, more acceptable to the unsaved. And we do that because we want to please them rather than to please God in proclaiming the Word of God. So these men are in agreement with the Apostle Paul, with whom I also agree, of course. And so my prayer is that Calvary Bible Church will never utilize seeker-sensitive methodologies or techniques to grow its membership. Now, I also agree with another writer who said this. Now, I've misplaced his name, unfortunately, so I cannot give him the credit for it. I wish I could. But listen to what he says. To be sure, we must be seeker-sensitive, but there is a very important distinction here. God says that he is seeking worshipers. Notice, God is seeking. God says he is seeking worshipers. The modern church growth concept is found on the error of Arminianism 
that man finds God. And we, a lot of us, hold this idea that we look for God. We can determine when we can accept Christ and all of these things. That's why we have these methods. And so we cast aside worshiping God by his criteria, the Holy Spirit and truth, in order to be seeker-sensitive. After all, we are the ones who save people and bring them into the kingdom, right? Now, this is a sarcastic statement here. That is the assumption. But if God is the seeker, our duty is to find a congregation where God is pleased with the worship, even though the message or style might be foreign or even offensive to the unchurched, which means the unsaved. If it is, it may be due to our personality or it may also be due to the word of God simply doing what it does. If that's the case, we are in good company with the apostles, the martyrs and reformers before us. That's a true statement here. We have got to focus on what God focuses on. That's the worship. Now notice this. If it is true that God is seeking worshipers, this is why when I say that when we talk about evangelism, what we are looking for are people who would worship God. That's the end project of evangelism, finding worshipers, not just people to add numbers to your church but to find worshipers. Now, if God is seeking worshipers and we have believers who are seeking God, what do you think is going to happen? There will be spiritual growth as God meets with the seeking Christian. Here's how the New Living Testament translates this verse. Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Oh, cherish this, relish this, listen to this carefully. You're talking about chewing the honeycomb of the word. This is a piece of honeycomb. Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. That's what a true seeker does. He seeks the things above by setting his sights on the realities of heaven. Now, what does the Apostle Paul really mean by this? Let's Let's exegete the passage very carefully. Paul gives two commands in this section. Both are directed toward the true seeker. The first command is, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. First command then, set your sights. On what? Where? He says, on the realities of heaven. See that? Heavenly realities, the things above, where are they? Listen now how Paul describes these specific realities we are to set our minds upon. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now again, this is both a spiritual and a historical fact. If you recall in chapter 2 when we looked at that passage, Paul clearly stated that Jesus was the reality. You remember he talked about the shadows of the old covenant, the sacrifices, the feasts, the holy days. All of those were shadows. The reality, he said in chapter 2, is Jesus Christ. And because he appeared once to take away sin, all the shadows are now obsolete. They are unnecessary. Why? 
because the real thing is here. Jesus is the reality. And Paul stresses in this passage, he is the absolute God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is reconciler. He is the redeemer. All is all. In him, all is everything we need is in Jesus Christ. He is all and all, and all we need is in him. In him, Paul says, dwells the complete deity, the complete Godhead in all of its fullness. That's who we are to seek after. That's who we are to look. And if you ever define yourself as a mature Christian, then you have to say that I am seeking the glorified, the absolute uh, Savior Jesus Christ is being glorified. So Paul is saying, look at him. Set your eyes on Jesus. See who he really is. He sits in the place of highest honor. That means he is majestic. He is sovereign. He is all powerful. He is God. His sitting down also signifies that his redemptive work as our high priest is over. He was not only the high priest who offered the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice as well. He offered himself once for all, and then what did he do? He sat down. No more standing and offering shadows as those who don't know him are doing. It's finished. The priests who have not yet accepted Jesus Messiah, they went on offering sacrifice day after day, year after year. They could not sit down because the sacrifice was not completed. But because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, when he offered himself, it was done. And he sat down. It was finished. No more offering now. Horatio Bonner was a beautiful, wrote a beautiful hymn concerning this. We used to sing it around the Lord's table in the Brethren Assemblies. Listen to these words. No blood, no altar now. The sacrifice is o'er. No flame, no smoke ascends on high. The lamb is slain no more. But richer blood has flowed from nobler veins to purge the soul from guilt and cleanse the reddest stains. We thank thee for the blood, the blood of Christ, God's Son, the blood by which our peace is made, redemption great is won, delivering us from hell and sin and woe, that his eternal life God may to us bestow. Isn't that beautiful? No more altar now. No more sacrifice. The sacrifice is over. And Jesus now sits as our advocate in glory. He sits in a place of power and authority. Paul is saying then to the seeking Christian who is desiring intimacy with Christ, set your eyes on this Jesus, the one who has completed our redemption, the one who is an all-powerful, almighty, the sovereign one. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and completer of our salvation. Jesus now, though, is now our advocate. And he's still working on our behalf, you know. Jesus' work is not finished. It's finished as redeemer, but he's still working for us in glory. 
He is our advocate, interceding for us in the very presence of God. Listen carefully. As Redeemer, he saved us from the penalty of sin. As our risen advocate, he now saves us from the power of sin. And soon he will appear again as our king, who will save us from the very presence of sin. Beloved, this is why we should sing when we come together to worship. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. That's our Jesus. Set your eyes on this Jesus. If you are a true seeker, that's what you'll be doing, Paul says here. But then he gives a second command in verse 2. He says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. This is the New Living Testament. Paul is saying what I always say to you. Selah. Think about what you've just heard from the word of God. Think about it. Reflect upon it. Meditate, Paul is saying here, upon Jesus, who now sits in a place of honor, power, and authority in glory. Don't think upon the beggarly, earthly, man-concocted rituals, traditions, and empty philosophies that lead only to slavery. Paul says, fill your mind with the glories of the glorified Jesus Christ. That's what a true seeker after God does. He or she thinks about Jesus Christ as he is now, seated at God's right hand, risen and glorified. To paraphrase the author of our national anthem, who is my former teacher, by the way, Timothy Gibson. Remember how it goes? Lift up your head to what? I paraphrase it this way. Lift up your head, seeker, to the risen sun. S-O-N. That's what Paul is saying here. Lift up your head and look, gaze, meditate upon the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who is the true and only God. But now, why should we do this? Paul gives the answer in verse 3. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. What a tremendous truth this is, beloved. What a fantastic blessing it is. What an act of grace is mentioned here. Notice what it says in this paraphrase. Our real life is hidden with Christ in God. Our real life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, this is a fact if you are a believer. It's true of all genuine seekers of Jesus Christ. We have died to the old nature, the old way of life. Our real self is hidden with Christ in God. Now that really blows my mind here. It really does. Young people used to say, this off the chain. Do you still say that? You still say that? This off the chain. This is an amazing statement here. This is an almost unbelievable statement. But let's look at it carefully to understand what the word of God is saying. You see, again, this is why you need feeders of the word, shepherds of the word, teachers of the word to understand it. The word hidden here doesn't mean something you cannot find. But rather, it is something that is stored away and kept securely because of its value. 
the believer was cut off or as Paul says in chapter 2, circumcised away from the old corrupt nature by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully now because you will not hear this in a seeker-sensitive church. They don't talk about these kinds of truths. This is too deep for the unbeliever who they say is seeking. They can't understand this stuff at all. But you as a true seeker after God who has placed faith in Christ should be able to. Let's look at it now. You remember Jesus says in John 17 that he and the Father were what? One. And then he prayed what? That we might be one with them in the same way that they were one with one another. Isn't that right? Well, Paul is telling us here now that God has answered that prayer. Paul says that is indeed a fact. Christ, who is our life, is hidden in God. We are hidden in Christ. Christ is one with the Father. We are one then with both of them. That's a wonderful truth. That's a deep truth. And if you really want to revel in the love and the majesty of God, meditate upon it. Think upon it. Reflect upon it. Now, of course, we are one with them in the sense... Not in the sense that we are God or we, little, we are little gods like some people are teaching today. Not in that sense. But we share in the divine oneness and unity that allows us to share in the benefits of the divine nature. Peter puts it, we are partakers of the divine nature. We don't become gods or little gods, but we share in that nature, partaking of the elements of it anyway, the blessings of it. And it's all because our life is hid with God in Christ. I say to you again, this is a seeker-sensitive message. If you know who a seeker-sensitive person is, a seeker, according to the word of God, is one who is seeking for intimacy with God by knowing the word of God. If you talk about eternal security, this is it. Listen carefully. Our life is safely and securely stored away in God himself and in Jesus Christ. And no one can take us out of the hand of the Father or the hand of the Son, especially when they are in one another's hand. You just can't do it. You talk about, was that out on TV now about security lock or something, about losing your identity? This is one here. And by the way, we're talking about identity here. I'm going to do that in a minute, all right? No one can take us out of the hands of the triune God. No one. Remember now, I say this again, all of this is being revealed by the apostle so that we could become mature in the faith. And he's talking to genuine seekers, those who are seeking intimacy with God through Christ by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Paul is saying that to be Christ-like, we must know what Christ is like. Did you get that? To be Christ-like, we must know what Christ is like. The better we know him, the better we know the Father. And the amazing thing is this. The better we come to know Christ, the better we come to know ourselves. Because now our real self is hidden away in him. So if we really want to know who we are in Christ, we've got to know who Christ is. Our life is hidden in God in Christ. That means we are identified with him. If there's one person who should not have a problem with self-image, it's a Christian who knows who he is in Christ. 
Our identity is locked into the identity of Jesus Christ himself. Listen carefully now. We must not only know our position in Christ, but we must also know our person in Christ, who we are in him. Paul says we are a new creation, being made or created into his image day by day, moving from glory to glory. That is what happens in the life of a true seeker. We are being created every day more and more into the image, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because we are in him, we have to take after him and we become more like him day by day. Notice now, going back to our context, we are not what we were before we were circumcised by Christ through his death and resurrection. We are to be being transformed into his moral likeness day by day until one day we will be completely transformed into his physical image as well. See, that's what's happening. While here on the process of sanctification is going on, from a moral point of view, from a character point of view, we become more like Christ. And we become more like him the more we come to know who he is. But it's going to move forward to a point until, hey, in order for us to be just like Christ, we have to be transformed into his very physical image as well. Listen to what John has to say about this as well. In fact, first listen to what Paul says. He says, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, what happens? You will share in his glory. Do you get all of that? We will share in his glory. Only the true spiritual seeker can grasp this. We will share in all his glory, all of his glory, not just some, but in all his glory, because we are so identified with Christ. Anything that happens to him happens to us. Listen to what the Apostle John says about this in, in uh, his epistle, chapter 2, verse 3. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls, uh, he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. See, that's why you've got to be careful who you identify as a seeker. They just can't understand these wonderful spiritual truths. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. Now, do you get that? Right now, we can call ourselves the children of God. Isn't that glorious? Sure. But he says he has not shown us what we will be like when he appears. But we do know that we will be like him. For we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation, that's the seeker, all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. See, what he's saying is here, as we anticipate being conformed, transformed to the very image of Jesus Christ, physical image, we are being transformed into his moral image right now. That's why you and I as a believer should have, know nothing about dishonesty and lying and hypocrisy and backbiting because those things are not like Christ. All of those things should be dropped off. 
And we're going to be talking about that later down in these verses. But Paul is saying here, the abiding hope of that eminent transformation, because it could happen any moment. If you say, boy, I'm glad I heard about this, but now I want to get ready so when Christ comes, I'll be ready. Well, you might be too late. Because Christ could appear before we finish today. You believe that? So Paul is saying, the abiding hope of this eminent transformation to be like Christ motivates the seeking believer to be holy even as Jesus is holy. You see, you don't hear anything about holiness in the seeker-sensitive churches. They never tell the people that they're sinners or they're bad or they do anything bad. Everything is good for them. They give all the promises of a true believer to the unsaved. That's what they do. Everything that is promised to the true believer, they say it's true of the unbeliever. But that's not so. But in the meantime, as we're being transformed to be who we are, we must do certain things. And they are all definite and specific commands given in the passage. He's, he's speaking to the seeker now. He's speaking to the genuine seeker who is drawing upon the power of the risen Christ to live like Christ in a Christless world. He gives over 30 direct commands. You know, the people like to say, well, we're in Christ now. We're living in a time of grace, not of law. We don't have to obey the law. But you look at this passage. Paul gives us over 30 laws, 30 commandments that the true believer is to follow and to do. 39 of them. I'm going to go through them right now. No, I'm not. We're going to leave this until the night because I know you all are so hungry for the word that you want to listen to this. But as you look at these verses in following from verse 5 on down, verse 6, look at these commands. You'll see that we are to do it. Christ is not to do it for us. This is the miracle and mystery of what Paul calls when he says, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In other words, he gives us these commands to do, which are so difficult. But we have to realize this because our life is hid in God. We're not really the ones who's doing it. Christ is doing it in and through us. I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Hudson Taylor called it the exchange life. This is tough to do. But the seeker who is hidden, hidden with Christ in God can say with absolute confidence, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens or empowers me. So keep that in mind as we go through these commands this evening. But let me begin looking at them right now. Paul lists some of these earthly things that lack within us, that lurk within us. Notice what he says in verse 5. This is the first command. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Another version puts it, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. This is the general comprehensive command. It covers everything. But that's the first one. Put to death the sinful earthly thinking things that lurks within you. These hidden desires. These hidden lusts and so on. Paul says you have to do away with them. Now is it easy to do? No it isn't. But Christ can do it in and through us. The second command is, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, 
lust and evil desires. Now, if I had more time here, we would go through each one of these words, each of these concepts, and explain what they are. But of course, my time is running out. Number three, don't be greedy. Why? A greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Whatever it is you're greedy after, you are worshiping that. You become a pagan worshiper. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. Now, if you are a professing believer and you know you are still doing some of these things, then you better check yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. You might not be a true seeker after God at all. But notice what he says in verse 8. But now is the time. Now is the time. Because of your new life now. Get rid of anger. Five, get rid of rage. Six, get rid of malicious behavior. Seven, get rid of slander. Eight, get rid of dirty language. Nine, don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off the old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. This is a wonderful phrase he used about stripping off or taking off and putting on. Again, it's a Beautiful thing to get into, but we can't do it now. It, but this is not a part of the true seeker's wardrobe. If you are a true seeker after God, you won't be lying to one another because this is being circumcised away from you. Number 10, put on your new nature. And number 11, be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Now notice that. Be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. That's what Paul has been talking about from chapter 1 in Colossians. In order for us to come to know God more intimately, we must know his word. And as we come to know him more intimately, we become like him. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, uh, what does he say? He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but what? Be re transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Notice, be transformed. Metamorphosis is the word. It's like becoming, changing from an old, ugly caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. Be transformed, be metamorphosized by understanding the word of God, applying it to your life. Then notice how, let me read this verse 11. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slaved or free. In other words, he's saying in his new life, racism Prejudice and things shouldn't be a part of your lifestyle. If it is, check yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. Because it's very clear here. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. It doesn't matter. Notice what matters. This is what he says. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. Did you get that? Look at your brother and sister and think about this as you look at them. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Do you believe that? 
Christ is all that matters. You see, the unsaved so-called seeker doesn't believe this, doesn't believe that Christ is all that matters. That's why they seek after things. Now, they might, some people might tell them, if you come to Christ, all these things will be yours. And they get the idea that once they become Christians, then they ain't got no more money worries. They ain't got no more financial worries. They ain't got no, more, no worries at all. But when they place faith in Christ, they find out, boy, the problems just start. But we rejoice in those, don't we? Amen. But here's what I want to end with tonight. We'll try to go through a little bit of it. We'll ask, we'll open for a time of questions tonight. And as I mentioned in the bulletin, this will probably be the last time we have a time for discussing our method as senior pastor. So come out tonight after the Lord's Supper. We'll be talking about these things. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. Let's repeat that together, please. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. Father, thank you for this wonderful truth. We pray that all of us here might truly be seekers after God. We pray that we might seek after Jesus Christ. To be like him in all that we do, in all that we say. Thank you for this wonderful truth. That Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. And all of God's people said...